Hello, and welcome to the Nomi Key Show. I am Nomi Key Konst, and we have 34 days until the deadline to decide between continuing the flawed but sometimes hopeful democracy we grew up in and fascism. This is the takeaway from last night's wrestling match, which corporate media continue to refer to as a debate. First, of course, this was no debate. Perhaps a joint appearance by two politicians with completely different purposes in being there. Sure, it was anger-inducing, chaotic, ugly, disgusting, impossible to watch. But if that is all you take from this, and it is more or less all many analysts are offering on cable news, then you missed what happened. So let's break it down. Believe it or not, Donald Trump came in with a very focused strategy. For much of the debate, he executed with horrifying precision, disrupting every attempt by Joe Biden to get a clear thought out, bullying, taking over, arguing, and disputing. When the moderator from Fox News, nonetheless, told Trump to stop, Trump just attacked him too, turning yet another journalist's attempt to be a journalist's, you know, against him. This is who he has shown to be for years. Are we surprised? That was just part one of the Trump strategy. To, quote, let Trump be Trump. A slogan that hung on the wall of his 2016 campaign headquarters. While he was disrupting and baiting Biden into responding to Trump's narratives, that man was also tossing dog whistles and veiled appeals to his highly targeted audiences. Remember how we got here. In 2016, neither the media nor the Democrats understood what Trump was doing. The data-driven targeting that helped him assemble an electoral college victory while losing the popular vote. This dark art produced super thin margins of victory in Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania. In the winner-take-all world of the current electoral college, that was enough to take the presidency. He got away with this in part because of the way our media and political conversation works in our world of 27-second news and quarterly economic returns. Events fly by with frightening speed and shallowness. We rarely stop to understand the details. And when we do pull back the lens, we pull it back too far and talk in such generality and abstraction as to be meaningless. Trump wins in the middle ground where nobody is watching. In 2016, we painted him as a madman, a huge generality, a clown who couldn't possibly get elected. We were wrong, but we have not learned the lesson. Again, we are painting him as an out of control madman, and we are completely missing the method in that madness. This is surgical. Through the beginning and middle of his presentation, there was a message on stage for every single follower and past voter of Donald Trump. It was only toward the end that Donald Trump, high on his own performance, began to go full on Trump, pull back the layer. That was when we saw the dictator in waiting, or current, laying the argument to defy the election result praising voter suppression in Philadelphia, and openly alerting white supremacists to stand ready for what will come next. These were not dog whistles. They were uncoded messages to get ready to fight, to get ready for his revolution or his coup. You saw exactly who he is. He is the son of a Nazi. That is what this election is deciding. Can I tell you something that really scared me? It wasn't Trump, actually, at all. It was after, when Biden's deputy campaign manager went on TV to say how well it had gone. Biden is leading in the national polls, she kept saying. No, 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 no. Talk about needing to get smarter. Forget the national polls. If we didn't understand how close it could be, because the Nazis are so surgical in building their coalition and voter suppression, we are not going to go to work to do the work that we need to do to make sure everybody votes. We need to understand the surgical strategy of a campaign. It's not just presidential campaigns. Joe Biden himself did it in the primary. So why can't they seem to do it now? As Bernie said last week, there is one real safeguard against Donald Trump trying to overturn the election and seize the government. This is to win by so much in so many places 
that there is no plausible way to challenge the outcome, which is why Biden needed to focus on his message, respect his base, the Bernie base, and add, add to that coalition, or as we should be calling it, the popular front. So find a way to work on that turnout. Don't wait for Biden and his campaign to save us from fascism. We all have to canvas and make calls and do voter registration, legal aid, help with local races. Pennsylvania says it needs thousands of poll watchers. There's more that we can imagine is at stake right now. You're smart to not take cues from centrists or corporate media, but we all have our part in this popular front. God forbid that we look back in February with a shutdown internet, tanks on the streets, and friends and family rounded up. This is what history shows us. It can happen here. All right, we have an incredible show today. We start off with the brilliant Bhaskar Sankara to discuss Jacobin's 10-year anniversary. I feel so old. Uh, and later we have a spicy panel with Matt Binder and Jordan Zacharin. But first, here are some of the stories from the top of my feed. Establishment Democrats took the gamble that they could avoid accusations of radicalism and socialism from the Republican opponents by dooming the socialist presidential campaign of Bernie Sanders. But Monday night's debate showed us that Trump expected to debate Sanders. The ideas and the issues, the candidate who dominated the, the discussion on the progressive policy in the Democratic primary. Trump made repeated comparisons between Biden's candidacy and Sanders' agenda for health care, policing, and the Green New Deal. While many of these ideas have massive support from the American electorate, making them important topics to tackle during a presidential debate, Tuesday's night's discussion and Biden's refusal to engage in these topics only underscored how unequipped the Biden campaign is to respond to Trump's attacks and how unprepared he is to address the most critical issues facing the people. You better smart, smarten up before the next debate. On Tuesday night's debate, both candidates were asked to condemn white supremacist groups inciting violence across the country. Biden's response was, that's my dog, Biden's response was that groups like Proud Boys should instead stand back and stand by, prompting these organizations to remain involved and awaiting a cue. Tweets like the one from Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez capture how this signal only underscores Trump's own commitment to white supremacy, as well as how it spells out a threat to public safety. In a piece for Jacobin, friend of the show Megan Day discusses British Channel 4 News' report that the 2016 Trump campaign attempted to deter 3.5 million black people from voting by targeting social media ads at them. Megan Day makes the point that because Republicans do not win with black voters, the party has seized on the strategy of attempting to disenfranchise them. She also argues the Democrats' refusal to support black constituencies instead of opting for punitive crime bills and anti-welfare messaging supplies Republicans, like Trump, with material for critique. Hence, traps, uh, Trump's ad, also a trap, quote, we remember, aimed at black voters and evoking Biden's support for a more brutal carceral state. We have to learn our lessons. And last, it was announced yesterday that Disney is laying off 28,000 workers from its parks, experiences, and products division, citing the ongoing devastation of the coronavirus pandemic. Let's keep in mind that Disney has an estimated net worth of $130 billion. While the chair of the division, Josh Damaro, uh, commented that the company was, quote, forced to reduce the size of our team, we should be asking why the wealth of the company created by the same workers facing layoffs during the pandemic is not benefiting those workers at a time when they need the wealth the most. Everybody knows that Disney can afford to keep supporting its workers. The company should not be cutting healthcare costs to those that it has furloughed. We need a socialist ideology so that it's not let, left up to Disney executives to do the right thing. And we're going to talk about that plan right after the break with Bhaskar Sankara, founder of Jackman.
Welcome back to the Nomi Key Show. If you're not already, make sure to smash that like button and subscribe and share this on social media. You know we're a growing show. Bhaskar knows how to start a media company very well. He knows how to start a show on YouTube as well. Uh, Bhaskar Sankara is the founding editor and publisher of Jacobin, as well as a col columnist for The Guardian and the author of The Socialist Manifesto, The Case for Radical Politics in an Era of Extreme Inequality. He's also the publisher of Catalyst, a journal of theory and strategy, and London's Tribune. Okay, <laughs> I don't know how you have any time in the day to do anything, uh, but... <laughs> Welcome to the show, Bhaskar, and congratulations. I, I don't sleep. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I feel like I'm like that. And this is, you dwarf me. Well, um, I just started drinking coffee for the first time, like a few months ago. So I've been holding that as my, um, and I feel like it, it had really good effects for two months. And now it's all like, I'm back to normal, but now I need the coffee. So yeah. anyway, it works wow. out. Wow. Well. Yeah. I started uh, drinking coffee late in li late late in my I mean early in my adulthood late in life I mm -hmm. guess um, when I was traveling because I was having horrible uh, jet lag mm -hmm. and now I'm at the stage where it's like if I don't have a nitro in the morning which is pretty much you know a level of drug at, at this I mean it's, it's intense um, I'm not a human I'm you don't want to be in my presence like <laughs> I have right. this, like silence <laughs> uh, but yeah it takes a lot of focus to be able to do all this work so congratulations Jacobin uh, 10 years 10 years very important years but but when you launched obviously this was pre-Bernie pre pre-DSA's uh, pre you know blowing up of, of DSA can you tell us a little bit about the story of Jacobin's founding yeah, I guess um, I'd been a socialist for my teenage uh, years. And uh, to describe my socialism, it was a combination of uh, a respect for the welfare state and what it could do for people's lives day to day, but also a um, belief that the welfare state wasn't enough and an interest in the Marxist framework and in a lot of more radical socialist uh, history. And I think we kind of need both balancing acts. Like I think it's not enough to just be for a welfare state when we've seen the way in which reforms can be so easily undermined. We see what, what capitalists do to every single victory we, we made. There's a reason why figures like Rosa Luxemburg has compared it to like the plight of Sisyphus. You're rolling a boulder up a hill um, only to have it roll back down um, on you. But at the same time, you know, a lot of people are just fighting day to day for a little bit of dignity for healthcare, for the first time or for healthcare that doesn't cost a $6,000 deductible to even to even use and, and whatever else. And we can't separate ourselves from those day-to-day, -day less abstract um, battles. So that was basically the core politics of, of myself was the this core politics of Jacobin uh, now. But back then, within the left, a lot of these ideas were a, a minority. You know, it was a left that was very much, to put it in a broad strokes, critical of organizations, critical of party building, that so no, no prospects whatsoever for any sort of electoral action. That's why I give so much credit, by the way, to people like Samus Watt and um, Socialist Alternative and people like that who are actually running these small races back when they weren't getting a lot of traction and uh, kind of fighting for that, that breakthrough. Um, and... For me, the goal was twofold. One was to make these interventions on the left to get us to go back to some of our materialist roots to, to say that, okay, we believe in struggles against oppression, but let's bring it into a class framework. Let's bring it into a broader connected movement so we could actually start to build majorities. Because we know that even though we want to leave no one behind in our movement, we need to build on the most broad, most common kind of basis. And that means leaving no one behind in both ways, either not leaving behind oppressed groups uh, by not ignoring them in our program, but also making sure that everybody feels welcome, no matter if you're um, a, you know, straight white male earning 60 grand a year, like, you know, join in, <laughs> you know, whatever, whatever else, just kind of ecumenical spirit. But I think what we have actually done really well was to communicate these ideas, these often very fringe ideas and debates in a way that's accessible. So I think every Jackman article at best should challenge readers a little bit. Um, it might not be the easiest read. It's definitely not USA Today, but also it doesn't make people feel like they need a lot of prerequisites to get in. Like in the same way that to read an article in The Economist, you know, you don't have to have read Adam Smith, um, though, you know, sure, you should read Adam Smith. Um, but in the same way, to get into a debate in Jacobin and feel like you have access to it, you shouldn't have to read Karl Marx or, or any of right. these other thinkers. And I think that's our our um, 
our reason for being. And then other than that, it was a lot of luck, a lot of great talented um, contributions. Our design is awesome. That's all we're making it's for. Yeah. Our designer, not me. Um, you know, we have a, a lot of very talented people. Um, Megan Day, you you mentioned um, earlier in your your intro. Um, so yeah, a lot of it's been been luck in the moment, and it's hard to separate the two, right? It's hard to say, okay, where where would you have been if not for Occupy, and if not for yeah. like the the changes that it made in all of our politics and our perspectives about what was possible. Um, but obviously at a subjective level, right? It takes a lot of work and, and a lot of efforts by a lot of different people. But, um, you know, we've been, we've been blessed by, by new movements. We've been blessed by um, the two Bernie Sanders campaigns, which I know looking back, we could say they were failures, but on the spectrum of success and failure, we definitely at least hit 90th percentile, right? In terms yeah. of um, outcomes. Uh, so um, anyway, that's, that's well, been the last decade. And that's actually a fair point because, like, there's so much I want to ask you. <laughs> um, but when when you launched, this was 2010. Uh, Occupy was brewing, um, and and it became it blew up overnight, right? And this is in the first for for younger viewers. I, I mean, I hope you know this, but it was the first years of of Obama and coming out of an extremely unpopular president who's now like a resistance hero, uh, George W. Bush. So there was this. There, there was this appetite for change, and I think what was really interesting about the growth of Jacobin and Occupy was how quickly people realized there was this moment, and we're not going to let Obama uh, take it away. I mean, I think a lot of Democrats did that and, and just trusted him, and then as a result, he didn't deliver on on so much. But from day one, you're very, you know, the, the movement was very smart about putting forward action and pressure um, that built into something much, much, much bigger. And, and I, I don't know. I mean, I think it's interesting. Um, so 2010, Occupy's Brewing. Uh, how did you build from that? I mean, how did you... This is this is like early social media still, you know, four, five years into Facebook. I mean, how are you able to grow this magazine at a time when also media companies were collapsing across the country and you decided to... They're, they're cutting print and you're right. like, yeah, we're going to go print. <laughs> well, I think, I think to be honest, one thing that we could say was definitely in our favor was just our small scale. Like, it didn't take a lot to begin with. Um, and we were filling a big board because there wasn't a lot out there advocating alternative uh, views, uh, views to the left of the mainstream. Like, I don't mean this to denigrate him, but I remember when I was... Um, starting Jacobin, Chris Hayes was like the leftmost figure. Like he was writing for The Nation. I think he was their Washington correspondent. Then he got a show on MSNBC and he was like the leftmost fringe of, of politics. Like even Ezra Klein was like American prospect. Oh he God. was uh, center left. <laughs> and, and again, like I, I actually think these are very reasonable, interesting thinkers and, and probably net positives, as, uh, like definitely net positive if you consider how like messed up American yeah. politics is, right? Um, so, but um, there was really no um, visible uh, left. And I think a lot of what we were engaged in on the left was like a legacy project. When I was first politicized into DSA, a lot of these DSA meetings would be people over the age of 55, 60, right? And they'd be very excited to see uh, a couple folks under the age of, of 20 and very nurturing, very friendly. It was a good environment. Um, they were quite sectarian sometimes and hated each other because of personal grudges from 20, 30 years ago, but they would never, um, never kind of spill that over to how they treated the, the younger, younger activists. Um, so, you know, I, I think that we had a milieu, we had a message that was distinct and also in a way print really helped. So it was at a time when lots of blogs were proliferating, lots of online magazines and the barrier to entry for those are so low that no one really stopped and paid attention. Like you spoke to your audience and they mm -hmm. would eventually fizzle out because even though Jackman certainly grew very slowly at first and didn't have enough money to, to survive for many, many years, um, at the very least, we had some resources coming in from having a print physical product that people would, would see. Uh, and also just the legitimacy that conferred, especially older writers. They wanted to write for a print publication, not for an online publication, whatever else. Mm -hmm. So I think that really worked our our advantage but fundamentally you know it's it's a quarterly magazine so it's niche 
um, publishing. And now that we're growing, we're finally, for the first time, able to invest in more original investigative journalism. Right. Um, obviously, um, uh, Nano, Nano and, and Anna and uh, our, our late friend Michael Brooks like helped us start up this um, this uh, YouTube channel. So we're able to do some video now. But weekends. you know that's yeah. So we, we the weekend show and then and then various other things we're doing on YouTube now. But obviously that's that's very difficult. And it like you need a combination of expertise and friendly people willing to 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 do a lot of uh, work for way below market market rates for this specialized work. Yeah. And uh, we're now just experimenting with these with these other things. But, you know, one thing I do keep in mind is it's almost as if I was much more pleased when we like hit 10,000 subscribers because we were a successful small magazine. Now we're at like 62,000 or so subscribers, which is great, but we are like way smaller than larger publications than us um, and also way bigger than the really successful small publications. So I feel like now we're in this like intermediary yeah. <laughs> uh, period where, where we, need to, we need to figure out a way to definitely grow and just continue to root ourselves in um, working class communities and people, but in a way that's not... Um, condescending you know it's not a matter of of uh dumbing it down or whatever else i think it is a matter though of providing something distinct and different because we can't just see that to the right and that's one thing i'm really worried about in a biden first term because people are going to be really afraid of going back to trump or something like trump but ironically if we aren't an immediate opposition force uh to a biden administration then we're ceding that ground just to the populist right uh and that's a difficult thing to navigate because how do you be an opposition movement, but also be respectful of the millions of working class and poor people, especially people of color, who would have made a Biden victory possible if, he, if he's able to, to pull it off. So there's all these kind of um, dilemmas that we, and in general, I mean, this applies to all uh, left to center uh, media, we'll have to, to navigate. But um, the goal is obviously to continue to root ourselves more deeply in something real, be it a movement, be it a, a, a social base of people and not just be uh, this like free floating, unaccountable, you know, thing. So it, what I what I love about Jacobin um, is strategic. It's thoughtful. There's a diversity of opinion um, that probably many didn't even realize existed on the left. And and I I in particular love the historic flashbacks. Um, to learn from, you know, just, just, we've been here before, et cetera. So, so you as at this moment, right. Um, having some sort of editorial, I, I think I'm feeling like there's a lot of folks who are losing their grasp, not everybody, but some folks feel defeated. Uh, they want to, you know, stay out of the movement. They may find it easier just to go work for the centrists or, I mean, for lack of a better term, sell out. Um, and you've done some pieces recently that I think are really smart. I mean, the perfect example, whether or not he was really in the movement to begin with, is, is the piece on Sean McElwee. Uh, if you haven't seen that, go check that out. Because, you know, I think it's, a, it's he, this is my editorial, like, I think he's essentially a weapon of, of <laughs> neoliberals and maybe even some, like, progressive organizations to, to control who is able to be elected and not on the left, um, saying in a very basic way. So as an editor, how are you able to kind of sift through what's real and what's not? And in this like very sensitive moment, especially reflecting back on history and seeing how many moments there have been like this. Well, I think having an overall framework, like an ideological framework and an intellectual framework really, really helps. So in other words, in our bones, I feel like we are fairly dogmatically Marxist, right? And the difference between us and other fairly dogmatic Marxists is that we're not, uh, we tend to be pretty flexible. Um, some might say opportunist, but I would say flexible or tactically savvy about how we communicate ideas and how we win people over. Uh, there's a great Joan Robinson quote that I love, which is that uh, she was talking to a friend who was a, a much more orthodox Marxist, but of course she was kind of a heterodox economist who drew a lot on Marx. She said, the difference between me and you is that I have marks in my bones, you have marks in your mouth. And I think that's a lot of what Jackman does. And that, that helps, that helps, I think, figure out, um, you know, be able to plug in where things are coming from and see what ideas are serving the interests of capital 
and what ideas are broadly serving the interests of, of uh, working class people, or at least explaining something at a materialist level. And that allows us to be pretty flexible in who we publish as individuals on certain issues. So there are certain liberals who don't share our framework or our goals that we're happy to publish on issues like student debt or Medicare for all. Like I'm for the decommodification of like all the economy. You're for the decommodification of this portion of the economy. That's fine. Let's 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 talk about that. Or occasionally we publish historians or or other thinkers, philosophers or or whatnot who present a very compelling materialist um, anal- uh, an analysis, but might not necessarily be Marxist or have or share our political commitments. Like if somebody wants to explain, here are some of the economic and social roots of mass incarceration, even if they don't share our conclusions, you know, that's someone we would love to have. We would love to have a conversation about the roots of the Civil War, uh, the roots of the American Revolution, and have these debates and back and forth. So I think the real hard line that we have to draw is who's like a reactionary, like who we want to to know platform. And I think there's a lot of uh, both, of course, the obvious ones like like fascists, but, but also in general, there are right populists. Maybe we don't want to engage with intellectually, but there are other people who we could actually gain something by by engaging with. And, and it has to be a, uh, a judgment call. I mean, there's actually some right populists that I'm happy to to uh, have a debate with or something like, like that. There's others that I, I wouldn't, and you draw the line at like, um, you know, reactionary views on um, uh, on gender or race that, that are basically like anti-enlightenment, right? Do you actually mm-hmm. want to have a, 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 you know, we have to be strategic in other words and, right. and, and who, we're, who we're engaging with. And we, we try to do that, but obviously it's a, it's a fine line. There's a lot of contributors. There's no, um, like exact party line, uh, which I think is good. It would be a, re- it's a relief that there isn't one. Cause if there was, then it would just be a constant, very sectarian, like, yeah. or this person's in, this person's not in or whatever else, but there is a box. And I think the box is pretty big, but there is a box that does exist. And that's just something you figure out over time. And I'm sure you have the same dilemmas when it comes to like, all right, what guests are interesting that I want to book? How will the audience re- respond to them? Because you want to both challenge people uh, and you want to present new viewpoints and you also want to maintain the cohesion and kind of good feelings of a, of a movement. And that's a trick. I, I'm kind of not sure what the answer is exactly because we don't want to be an echo chamber, but we yeah. also want to build this cohesion. And, and it's a very fine line. So that leads great into my, my next question, which is um, when growing i mean you you've you've jacobin has built up uh it's it's blowing up essentially but how are you able to like spill these messages out there into a community that um is not as educated is not as online is not as well read um rural communities working class communities i mean is there have you seen jacobin make a difference has it has it been able to go ahead yeah yeah well i think that so over the last couple of years, we've just seen from reader surveys and other things that our audience has gotten more diverse and more working class using like certain things we ask, like education for a proxies class, which isn't like one to one, but it's like the best we uh, we often we often have. Uh, but just by virtue of it getting bigger. Um, so in other words, like America is such a large country that you could reach two million people online every single um, month and around 60% of our audience is in the U.S. So 60% of 2 million is, um, oh, I should know that, like uh, 1.2 million. Um, So, um, uh, and obviously you're still reaching tens of thousands of more working class people than any other, you know, similar left venue, but you're still not, you still don't have a social base. So what I'm wary of is is often like fool's gold. Um, And this is my one hesitancy or thing that I tell DSA members is like, let's look historically at the new left and other explosions of the far left. And often it feels like if you're in a group of 10 people and becomes a group of 10,000 people, uh, like even the Maoist movement in places like Germany became in the new left um, era, it feels like you're growing by leaps and bounds. So that means next year or the year after you're going to have 100,000, then a million, then 10 million, then 20 million. And I think it leads to a kind of insularity and just like comfort um complacency and also just in general leads towards uh, sectarianism so in other words i don't know the answer to that 
I do know that by having um, some some like Branko Marchetich, one of our reporters, is like I know that his material tends to reach a newer audience and different audience than some of our other writers. I think it's because he does a lot of original investigative work and he has like a slightly um, less like maybe rote framework than I do, yeah. right? So and and I, I mean I don't. Like, I imagine that's good in some ways, bad in other ways, right? Depends on the type of piece or, or, or whatnot. But I think that's an example of, okay, doing a little bit more investigative journalism can open up new um, audiences. On the other hand, hosting debates. Like, we have hosted, like, a really big debate with the editors of Reason uh, about two years ago. And I still get emails about the debate. Oh, that convinced me, that changed my mind or, or whatever. And that's a good example of someone who... I disagree very vehemently with the editor's reason about a lot of things. I think they're actually responsible in some small part for a lot of really bad policies that are grinding down millions of Americans. But on the other hand, you know, they're non-authoritarians, at least besides for the workplace, they're total authoritarians there. But um, I don't mean their personal workplace. I don't know about that. I just mean like labor, um, labor, capital relations. But but in other words, like that's an example of like an engagement with people. Slavoj Zizek, I have a lot of disagreements with, but he had the debate with Jordan Peterson. He won over a lot of people. He presented his ideas um, out there. So I think we need to figure out a way to continue to do public engagement, to continue to, let's say, uh, have our journalists and other people go in places like NPR and engage in, mm-hmm. yes, polite, civilized, you know, discussion. So like, and I think this is my one pushback for what's also a large part of, you know, part of my audience, at least, like the kind of more like irony laden part of the the left. Uh, I totally get where that's that's coming from. But in fact, historically, let's say in the 1930s, like we had all sorts of crazy ideas as far as our program when it came to the left, right? But we were able to present a veneer of respectability because it helped us in our mass organizations and it helped us accomplish our political goals. The um, irony now is that actually there's nothing to hide we have no association with the soviet union on the contemporary u.s left like our old uh communists uh, did in the 1930s we are fighting for a really popular program that people tend to agree with everything from green new deal which is close to majority support to medicare for all which is outright majority support i think within the next decade we'll have very clear and outright majority support even among republicans so we, we have a really popular uh program and we're masking this popular mass program that already has support in sometimes very fringe and alienating rhetoric. Whereas, in fact, like regular working class Americans, I think, want to see like fairly polished and professional and serious people making the case for these these programs. Um, and it's difficult, I think, sometimes in our generation because we one didn't have that media training we don't come from those backgrounds i think that's one reason why we're we're actually committed to these sorts of 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 policies and we didn't already join the gnc or or something uh like that um and also because like it's it it is like it's a subcultures develop and they're not always a bad thing like that's part of building our unity and, and ties together as a as a community like it's fine for there to be in jokes among the socialist left and 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 things like that memes and whatever like that's part of building group cohesion but i think uh going forward like i really want to see jacobin breaking stories and getting uh, maintaining our media footprint and maintaining this dialogue with mainstream liberalism, especially, uh, so that they know that we're out there as a poll. And also viewers know that, like, listen, if you watch Joe Biden and you're like, I don't really like this guy. Um, and, um, you know, we, we want to speak to that, um, but, but from, the, from the left. So we're not just giving that space to the populist Exactly. Uh, right. That's exactly it. If, you, if you're not in that space... Um, intentionally. And, you know, I was watching right before our show, I was watching Bernie Sanders on The View, which, um, you know, the internet, the Twitter was furious about today. Why does he go on The View? They hate him because that's it's the largest audience. Why would he not go on The View? <laughs> yeah, or, or, or Fox Town Hall. Like, I know you were on this line, too, but it's just so common sense. Like, did anyone watch that town hall? He killed it. Killed it. And and like he's speaking to an audience that actually like is for his program even if they watch watch Fox. You know, it's, yeah. it's kind of uh, common sense in, in every other political context. But in the U.S., I think somehow we become very moralistic about these things, I think. Yes. In a way that, I mean, I remember when um, Barack Obama said he wasn't going to go on Fox News anymore. It's like, 
you're not going to fund the DNC. You're not going to fund organized. You're not going to go on Fox News. Who are you talking to? Mm-hmm. Like, what is the point? Uh, Bhaskar Sankara, I, I wish we had more time to talk about the future of Jacobin. So hopefully you can come back on and, and we'll talk a little bit more about those investigative pieces and we'll help amplify them however we can because uh, you're doing brilliant work and it's been very thoughtful organizing and um, we appreciate you. That's great. And I really uh, have, have loved everything on your, your channel and, uh, and I appreciate all your work you're doing as well and, and your support for, for Jacobin. And for just in general, this this growing kind of shared project we have on the on the left. But uh, thanks, everyone. Thanks. All right. Up next, we have our panel. We have Jordan Zacharin and Matt Binder. I, has he been on the? Sh- I don't think he's been on the show yet. I've been on his show. All right. Stick around. Right after the break, we'll be talking about today's news. Lots of it. Welcome back to the Nomi Key Show. If you're not already subscribed, hit that subscribe button and smash that like button. This is the part that is very unnatural to me, so help me out a little bit. (laughs) Share it in the chat. Uh, Go on social media. Please do that. I got to get better at this. It's it's an art. I watch some of these other hosts, and they are so good at promoting their shows, and I am so not, but we will get there. Uh, Jordan Zacharin runs the Progressives Everywhere newsletter. He's a reporter and editor with The Observer, and he's back again. He's a regular panelist now on the Nomi Key Show. Uh, Matt Binder is a reporter for Mashable's tech section, where he focuses on YouTube politics, misinformation, data privacy, video streaming, and more. He's also the host of the show Doomed, a weekly podcast and YouTube live stream that breaks down the latest political fake news, internet conspiracy theories, right-wing talking points, and more. And he's a contributor to Majority Report and Cafe.com. All right, guys. uh, Fake news. (laughs) Conspiracy theories. Uh, Let's talk about the debate last night. There was a lot of that. Let's do it. Let's do it. (laughs) First of all, thank you so much for having me on the show, Nomiki. It's a pleasure to be here with you. And everyone should... Like and subscribe to Nomiki's show on YouTube. Uh, and, you know, uh, I'm still not that good at it. And I've been doing this uh, for a very long time. I'm not, you yeah. know, those YouTube guys have it down, don't they? But yeah, they're this so is, good. Oh yeah. my God. They even have like little songs and jingles that go along with it to like. Should we do that? Maybe, maybe, right? <laughs> <laughs> All right. So we got some crazy um, consp- top conspiracy theory of last night. Uh, let's just go around the circle because. <laughs> Let's let's start with the expert, Matt. You are the expert in conspiracy theories. Right. So so today, I mean, yesterday they were throwing around the conspiracy theories before the debate. And by they, I mean uh, the right wing, the uh, the Trump supporters and, you know, the Trump campaign themselves started throwing them out, too. They they went all in. They were sending out uh, mobile notifications via their Trump app to really let all their followers and base know all these conspiracies. And the main ones seem to be that one, Joe Biden had somehow got the debate questions for the night, which, uh, I mean, the topics were already previously publicly announced like a week ago. So I don't know what else they could have possibly told Joe Biden. Uh, They did not give any additional information to Joe Biden that they didn't give to the Trump campaign. And then two, there was a rumor that Joe Biden was going, was refusing, excuse me, refusing to let the debate uh, hosts inspect him for an earpiece so that his campaign could secretly feed in some sort of information or, I don't know, the correct answers to the debate. I mean, let's really just stop for a second and realize that these debates are not like you are asked a question and need to have a correct answer. Right. There really is no correct answer. It's not two plus two equals four. It is basically what you are proposing to do for the country. Like, what what could he possibly have needed? He's just regurgitating what he's been saying for years now on the campaign trail. It's also the teleprompter thing. They have this this ad. I don't know if you guys have seen this ad. I wish we had it ready. Uh, We'll play it. You know, hopefully we can pull it up for another show. But they have this ad that's out right now where it's like zooming in on on Trump's or uh, on Biden's hand going like this to the teleprompter and like there's a reflection in the in the glasses of a teleprompter. I have guys breaking news. I have a teleprompter. We all have teleprompters. I don't. Well, (laughs) you're special. Okay. I need one. I can't focus. Jordan, what was your favorite conspiracy theory? 
I gotta say, first of all, you know, I just, I want Donald Trump to tune in and see, I waited my turn, you know, I didn't interrupt. So that's already doing better than him. So, uh, you know, I respect Matt and I wanted him to get his answer out. So there we go. We're already more civil. Um, I, of course. Yeah. You know, I, the conspiracy theory, the idea that one, they were trying to get Biden drug test as if he, right. like, what was he going to be on? If anything, he was high last night because he was so slow and tired. Uh, so I wish that he had been doing some sort of uh, performance enhancer or cocaine or what, what have you. Um, the idea that he was on a wire again, I, if he had a wire, I would have been screaming into his ear, you know, mention the taxes, mention the fact that Trump brings up the fact that uh, Biden's son Hunter didn't have a job before his dad, that uh, he was making lots what? of money from Russia. And I was like, your entire administration, your entire family has jobs because of your a horrible scam artist uh, company and then your scam artist uh, time in the White House. So everything he said, Biden, if he had anyone in his ear, would have been like, no, just turn that around on him. So yeah. the conspiracy theories, I don't, you know, I don't know how you can continue to believe them, especially afterwards. You know, believe what you want ahead of time. Um, I love the idea of Joe Biden just blowing lines before the, before the debate. <laughs> that clearly didn't happen. And the idea that well, someone blew lines before the debate, and I don't think it was Joe Biden. <laughs> I wish someone, honestly, I wish someone, I know he did a lot of prep. You know, he stayed in his bunker and did a lot of prep for weeks. I don't know who's playing Trump, but they should have been doing, you know, some, some real uppers ahead of time, hopefully Listen, before gonna, the next I'm, debate. I'm going to throw out a Biden, a new, a brand new Biden earpiece conspiracy, and that is the <laughs> Biden campaign secretly inserted an earpiece into Trump's ear and said, Listen, keep interrupting Joe. Sound completely unhinged. Keep going. You're doing great. <laughs> That, it I was like they hacked his earpiece. Right. Well, okay, so this this actually, I mean, my, my take on this um, was Joe Biden's preparation, and and I knew some of the people, I know the people running his campaign, like we were on commissions together, not on the same side. You know, they're not the most high-energy, octane people. And I think if you're running against Donald Trump, it's not that you get someone to play Trump. It's that you need someone who has actually debated on Fox News on, on the right-wing side. Like, I watched that debate and I was like, oh, it's just like every single time I've ever debated anybody on Fox News. But if you know how to do that, you know how to disrupt it. Now, granted, he's totally wacko and like, you know, will come back more armed. But, but there is an art. First off, number one, never, ever take the bait. You know, if they launch an attack on you, you just go back to your message. You go back to your three talking points. You just yell $750, $750. You know, your daughter is being investigated. Like, whatever it is, you find your lines and you go back to it. You don't get sucked in. And I think that's what's just so mind-blowing to me to me is that the strategy, um, I don't think he, I mean, it's one thing to say that Joe Biden is old and, like, slow I actually just don't think he was prepped properly. I mean, even how he handled Bernie Sanders, like he took the bait on that one. They've been showing their cards all along. This wasn't some big surprise. Uh, what did you guys think of, of how he reacted to Bernie Sanders? Now, I would say that, oh, yeah, Matt, no, go ahead, go ahead. I would say that, you know, I, it was like we had said before, I wish they just nominated a socialist or an Elizabeth Warren because they were gonna accuse him of being that anyways. It didn't right. matter who we nominated, that would have been the accusation anyways. Of course, I wish Biden hadn't, you know, used the left to throw them under the bus every single time, whether it's Green New Deal or the public option. I was surprised he even defended the public option, to be honest with you. Oh. Uh, you know, and he, even though he said it was kind of you know, a, a people who don't have Medicaid type deal. Um, that's not pretty much what I expect from Joe Biden. I don't know how, how they prepped him. I'm sure they went over a lot of policy. I don't know why they wouldn't have expected Trump to just be at his mind. Yeah. Uh, what I couldn't believe, why, what I came away thinking was, imagine working for Trump. That was what came to me because <laughs> this is the guy who, first of all, he should have a shock collar, but he was- That's not, what I thought too. <laughs> he, they, need to, they need to shock him. And you know, this is a guy who hasn't been told anything that he's doing wrong for the last four years, because if he did, they'd be, they, he'd fire them. And so- this was like a peek into what it's like to work, to live, to be anywhere near Trump's orbit. And not that I thought Biden was showing himself to be a great option, but anyone who just doesn't want to pay attention anymore, who's just so tired, I guess that was the big distinction that, that was made last night. Right. I mean, I, I think these debates are real. I mean, there's no one really watching these, de these debates who are undecided. Everyone is sort of le at least leaning somewhere at some point at, at this point, I should say. But, you know, I think the real the real motive for these guys when they go out there is to basically make sure that the person who would be more likely to go and vote Joe Biden or the person that would be more likely to go vote for Donald Trump actually go out right. and That's cast that vote. It's you know, it's to motivate them to get off the couch on election day or to fill in one of those ballots beforehand and mail it in. And, you know, I, I will say that, you know, Joe Biden 
didn't do a great job. I feel like uh, Trump's uh, bravado and and muscle and the strong man sort of uh, personality sort of overwhelmed him, and he seemed like sort of uncomfortable at times being up there with with Trump. But Shut the same, up, man, right? <laughs> Those were his best moments. That's great. Right. No, but I, yeah, but exactly the when Biden actually spoke back and 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 fought back, <laughs> because the point is that Trump's audience likes to see him play the bully. They think having a president who can push people around and take control of the situation is what we need. And if Biden could just, you know, while still while still being what his audience wants to see, someone who isn't being a complete a-hole like Trump, you know, there is a way to take control of it without, you know, playing Trump's game. And I think Biden needs to find out how to do that. And, and then and then obviously perform in that manner because you gotta get the Trump people to 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 look at Trump in a different light. And while he may have performed well for his own base, Biden, uh, Trump also did to his base. So they need to, you know, Biden needs to do something about that, basically. It, you know, it's, it's interesting you say that about speaking to a base because there is also this other level um, layer in which Trump literally spoke to a very specific base. Um, Proud Boys making a version. I mean, they've, they've been they've had their mainstream debut, but they're back uh, for, for another round um, in that he literally like made a call to the most horrifying members of the base, the silent members of the base that are growing now because they, they found their leader. You know, years ago, not you know, I'm old enough to remember when like the most far right on on of the right wing were like the evangelicals who are anti-gay, anti-Muslim, anti-LGBTQ, anti-women. Like we were used to that and we thought that was disgusting. And there were people in the Republican Party who were preparing to move away from the Pat Buchanan's of the world. But this was like straight up. It's always existed. But this was just a straight up white nationalist, like a call for them. And I just don't understand how at this point, you know, aside from the fact that this is like an extremely dangerous game that he's playing, how any Republican centrists that are like looking for lower taxes or whatever it is that they want, can actually justify voting for this man after that statement tonight. I mean, am I missing something? Well, look, he's got uh, a third Supreme Court nomination coming up, right? I think that's how they do it. You know, Amy Coney Barrett will probably get onto the Supreme Court because people like Mitt Romney, who are so scandalized by Donald Trump, still they still want lower taxes. They still want deregulation. You know, you don't see the Lincoln Project going hard after, uh, you know, Trump's nominees. That's what they want. They do. The thing about Trump is that in a way I'm weirdly grateful for because he's exposed just how horrible these people are and kind of advanced the Republican project long, you know, far beyond what it was meant to be at this point. You know, these horrible policies are now attached to him and this horrible person. And mm-hmm. instead of dressing it up in some sort of decency, the way they normally did, you know, d- dress it up as George W. Bush being a guy who likes to clear weeds or whatever he did, brush, who knows, or Mitt Romney having 35 children and being a family guy. You know, these are policies that they want. They're just being, finally being exposed to what they are because they're attached to Trump. So I'm not grateful that he's passing them, obviously. Uh, I think it's horrible and it's lighting the country on fire. But at least we're seeing what these people have always wanted. It just, you know, the emperor now has no no I mean, well-fitting clothes. George W. Bush, yes, people wanted to have a beer with him. But then the Iraq war happened in Afghanistan and, he, you know, slaughtered millions of Iraqi babies um, through his policies. So, and, and Mitt Romney, now, he's a painter now. Right. And Mitt Romney, of course, put his dog on the roof of his car and drove across the country. So uh, there were a few cues along the way that these people were not decent. Uh, Matt, I mean, like, am I, I mean... Am I missing something? Like, even with Amy Coney Barrett, how how can you be in this party? Well, a, a lot of Trump's base are, are what I would call casual racists. They're not the type of people who are going to go out. Well, there are a number of them, but the ones I'm talking about are not the type of people who are going to go out and wave a, a the Iron Cross white pride flag. You know, they're not going to uh, seek hail at a, I don't know, at, a, at a conference with Richard Spencer. We're talking about people who you know they they live among they they live among other people in communities where they don't think black people have it harder than them in fact they think black people have it easier than them these are people who who you know casually probably drop the n word and other slurs and you know ethnic uh, slurs and, and to them it's not that's not what racism is uh it, they're just you know because they don't because they don't other those people in terms of going out and, and wanting a a nation that doesn't include them and I, I think that's what motivates a lot of people in terms of why they're able to be Republicans. Oh, well, you know, of course we were against white supremacy, but that's not really a thing. It doesn't exist. So why would Trump have to have to, you know, 
poo poo on it. If if you know they're just trying to trying to get him in a gotcha question, and this is all the media. You know that's really what what how they look at it. They don't see it as an actual threat because they sort of ling, live among the very casual version of it, and they don't see it as being racist. So um, right before I came on the presidential uh, debate commission which is a whole other question um, in itself, the, the makeup of that commission. Uh, but they they decided that they're going to issue new rules because, you know, the Joe Biden was spoken over most of the time. For those who don't know, you, you usually agree to a set of rules before you go into a debate. Um, although it's, you know, I ran for office and I didn't have that opportunity to talk about those things. But just putting, <laughs> putting it out there that it's it's not uniform across the board with every single uh, debate nowadays on, on media. Um, but they they changed the rules. Um, we don't know what they are yet, but it's an effort to give Biden more of an opportunity to speak without being um, cut off. I don't know if it's shutting off a microphone. I'm personally against shutting off a microphone because if it can be used against them, they can use against the left. And if you look at movements across the world, there have actually been uh, movements that have been stirred up. I think it was in India. There was a woman who was shut off. Her microphone was shut off and it staged a huge feminist uprising um, because, of course, you know, be careful with your weapons. They could be used against you, too. But there are other ways. I mean, they had their little minute where they couldn't get interrupted. And, and believe it or not, like, if you go back and roll those tapes, there, there was a little bit of interruption from Trump, but he pulled back a little bit, a little bit, compared to the rest of the, the night's performance. Um, Chris Wallace, what's your take on Chris Wallace? How do you think he did? Oh, he was great. He wonderful. He really took control of that situation. <laughs> I mean, I mean, listen, as the moderator, you can't like he, he was literally like, Mr. President, sir, please stop it. I mean, take control of the situation. Say you got to stop right now. And like, really just I mean, shut off the mic. I mean, I know you said you're against it, but there's a point where I mean, if you're if, what's the point of this all? Like, just I'm not, not against the collar. I'm not against him being buzzed and ejected. Just the microphone. That's all. Jordan, what's your take? You know, I think what the problem is that we continuously, the fact that they even have rules and Democrats expect people to follow them. Yeah. For the last five years since Trump has been, since he came down the escalator and uh, announced his campaign, even before then, just tweeting whatever he wanted to tweet, he hasn't followed any rules. And we're still acting shocked that this guy is saying whatever he wants to say and interrupting people. We continuously, it's, I know the, the, the metaphor is spent, but the losing the football thing, it continues to happen, but then it's like Lucy beating the hell out of Charlie Brown with the football and shoving it down his throat. You know, like this is what's going to continue to happen until Democrats realize that there are no rules and they shouldn't play by them either. And the media needs to realize that like they don't, not that the media doesn't matter anymore, but the rules and the norms they have presented no longer exist. They don't matter anymore because look, every time that Trump doesn't play by the rules, then uh, we complain. And then he seen, he can call people whiners. I don't know why there's going to be another debate. They're pointless. Yeah. You know, like they're, they're absolutely pointless. But if they get punch. canceled, right, if they get canceled, then it's going to be like, oh, look, Dems didn't want to have to deal with Trump. They're all afraid. As long as they play by these rules and think that people respect them and like get shocked that Donald Trump is all of a sudden violating the rules, the guy who puts children in cages and will lie and steal and do whatever he needs to do, who's paid $750 in taxes, they're going to get creamed. They, I, I just can't That's believe right. they still believe that there's any sort of decency or rules at all. Right. And, I mean, but and, doesn't go ahead. Oh, to, to build on that, you know, they're always playing their game, and no matter what, they always fall for it. Like, like you said, with losing the football. But specifically, like, look, they're going to change the rules of the debate, and you know how it's going to be spun. Trump's going to take it as, look, the media didn't like how I performed because I performed so well. Why else would they want to shut me up? Not because right. I was annoying and, and cutting off an actual uh, debate. Uh, sort of platform. No, no, no. It's going to be because I was doing so well and they don't like that. And then, of course, he's going to, then his base will come out and say how, you know, everyone's against Trump. And no matter what, it's going to be seen as against Trump. And they constantly just fall for the same ploy every single time. And it's going to happen again, obviously. It's it's essentially, I mean, look up like the the the, the tactics of abusive abusers. This is it's playing the victim. No, you're coming after me. You know, they put it out there and it's his fault. It's um it's abusive behavior. But there I mean, cautionary tale here is if you cancel the debates, what does that mean if by any chance we're able to preserve any semblance of democracy in this country? What does that mean for future elections? Will we suddenly just eliminate debates? Um these are those moments when these things change and and hopefully that doesn't happen. I mean, I still think there should be debates. I think that the debates should have been earlier. Um, most most of the states in this country now are doing early voting. Right. 
our next few, I mean, few days before the election in some cases. I'm not saying people voted already. You know, yes, it's insane. Eighty percent of Arizona votes before the election. Eighty percent. It's not as if debates are some long tradition. 1960 was the first TV and first overall debate between general election candidates. Then they didn't have Nixon didn't you know like it because he looked like he was dying on screen. He stopped doing them. LBJ didn't do them. They didn't happen again until 1976. So again, these are not long traditions that must be upheld, you know, because George Washington wanted to do it. <laughs> you know, this is the sort of stuff that can change and should change. You know, I like the idea of primary debates, at least on, in a primary where there's actual candidates who, you know, have ideas and control of their own brains. But, you know, so long as they run another type of Trump candidate, I don't see why Democrats should ever say, yes, let's do it right off the bat. Right. But the issue is also that everything is so media driven nowadays. And if you turn it down, the other person will obviously just take the opportunity right. to get their own, you know, their own time to talk. on. Of course, the cable news networks specifically, especially, I should say, are going to take an opportunity to have a sit down with one of the candidates because that's ratings for them, especially if it's a Trump type person. I mean, I don't think they should cancel debates. I mean, if you think they're a waste of time, you're going to think they're a waste of time and you just won't tune in. Otherwise, people will watch and I don't think anyone's going to get anything specific out of them at this point. I don't think they're going to, you know, they do any real harm or they do any real good. They're just sort of there. I mean, if anything, they're a lens into what's actually happening with the campaigns and what they're targeting. And I mean, if Joe Biden was able to get his, but still, I mean, that that comment about Bernie was revealing at this stage in the election. uh seems like he should probably warm up a little bit to his base because it is all about excitement so that we don't go to the courts. Um, that's just what I keep saying. Like, don't wait for Biden to save you. Find your own way. Find your own path to organize. It's about a national front. We don't necessarily have to agree with everybody, but at least we got to fight this crazy man um, from from staying uh, in office. One more thing I was just remembering. I, I We have to fact check this because I'm not sure if I dreamt it or if it actually happened or if it was just threatened. Uh, but did, didn't, didn't Trump think, didn't he say that he wasn't going to do one debate and then he simultaneously aired a um a rally on like fox news or newsmax or something in 2016 do you guys recall that where he said no no no, i'm not doing the debate and then i'm pulling the ratings away am Wait, I, 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 I feel like he's done that a few times where he's threatened to not have debates uh, i mean there was that one republican primary debate in, in 2016 that he said he wasn't going to show up and he didn't wow. that uh, was the idea that now that donald trump would give up any sort of tv time is yeah. so far-fetched like there is no world in which he will give up prime time, yep. uh, you know, 60 million people watching him. Like I can't, it's like he's an addict. And so the idea that he will say no to that is beyond the pale, which is why Democrats, if they want to keep doing this, should, you know, come up with a few actual rules. Well, there was there, there was that one time in 2016 where uh, Bernie challenged him to a debate. And, yes. And Trump basically turned it down after yeah. after go, you know Trump was talking it up for a while too, saying how he would totally do it because he would cream Bernie, and then it actually became a thing. Like Bernie was on some like late night TV show and and talked about it, and it became this big like topic of the news the next morning and the trump people were just like uh why would trump debate the second place person i mean this is a guy who calls into fox and friends like every other right. morning right exactly he's not gonna he's not gonna take the opportunity to he goes on newsmax like, right what? <laughs> alex Wait. jones he was on alex jones show during the 2016 campaign um Okay, my solution to this debate, this debate problem is they do individual town halls, which, you know, they love to do on CNN, and it's with real people, and they have to answer real people's questions. I think they should have to answer factual questions, like do some trivia and see how many, like if the first one to get a question right, I think will be the president. And that's where Biden's earpiece will come in handy. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and the Adderall, of course. Got to be sharp. Got to be on <laughs> top of it. All right, guys, uh, you are a blast. So much fun to have you on. I, I look forward to having you on again. Uh, thanks for sticking around. And thank you to everybody who has been active in the chat. Uh, Matt Bender, wh- what are you promoting right now? What's your... Uh, go to YouTube.com slash Matt Bender. I do a live stream version of the podcast every Thursday night. And also I co-host the Majority Report Thursdays for the time being. And uh, yeah, doomedpod.com for the audio version of the show after that. Awesome. Jordan? We all, have so many, we all have so many projects. I got the Progressives Everywhere uh, newsletter. It's progressiveseverywhere.substack.com. I also just launched a new site last night. It's called, COVID Super, it's called covidsuperspreaders.com. We're going to be adding all the Republicans who, uh, you know, and going through all the different policies and the timeline of the things they did to kill 200,000 Americans because 
I gotta tell you, it's really hard to keep track of it all. It's taken me weeks and weeks and weeks to do the research just for just the basic timelines of Trump and, uh, you know, Brian Kemp and Ron DeSantis and all those horrible people. So check that out. Send it to people, you know, who uh, maybe aren't convinced that COVID was entirely, you know, this the disaster was entirely preventable because uh, it was. Next week, let's talk more about that. That's so smart. Thank you for doing that. Um... You know, a lot of people who watch the show know that I, I was on a cross-country trip a couple of weeks ago and drove through a lot of these states and saw their policies uh, up front, and it was jarring. Um, okay, my promotion, because I'll forget. You guys want mugs? we got mugs now. Uh, go to the nomikeyshow.com. Mugs and swag and stickers and bags. I don't know where my bag is, but I'll show it next time, so make sure to check them out. <laughs> That's at the nomikeyshow.com. Thank you to everybody. Uh, special thanks. Who do we have in the chat here today? Shout outs from yesterday. Midi doctors. Thank you. That guy. That guy. That's like uh, what Joe Biden was saying about Trump. That man. Never called him Donald. Never called him the president. Red pill. Uh, love and peace from Antifa. You know, there are. And <laughs> I'm not going to say anything about the organizing, but feel free to organize in our chat. Uh, and thanks to Professor Harvey K. Of course, Bob, the moderator, Billy Big Bricks, and everyone mixing it up in the chat room. We will see you tomorrow at 3 p.m. Eastern, right here at the Nomi Key Show for our Thursday show. We will see you tomorrow.